right, good morning. I have the pleasure of, of sharing from the Word this morning. We're going to be continuing uh, this morning in our journey through the book of Matthew. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. So verses 1 through 17. So half of this chapter. Again, a lot goes on here. So buckle up. All right, let's read together. We're going to be in uh, verses 1 through 11 first, Jesus' triumphant entrance. Probably. There it is. Okay, so now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their, cloak, put on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So we land on the, the moment where we uh, memorialize in our celebration of, of Palm Sunday. Jesus seemingly has this deliberate, planned method of, of catching people's attention and awakening their minds to who he was. For 20 chapters now, Jesus had gone throughout uh, gone throughout teaching and all that and healing people, and he really kind of kept quiet who he was. And at this moment, now he's ready for his triumphant entry as king. So there's a few things going on here. First off, it, it's Passover, Passover week. Estimates of Jerusalem's population at the time ranged from about 20,000 to 80,000 people. And during this specific Passover time, some historians, including Josephus, say that there could have been upwards of 2.5 million people in Jerusalem. So it's packed. There's already a buzz of, of people. Already, there's already so much happening in this town, and Jesus really couldn't have picked a more dramatic time. He tells his disciples to go out into the village and get a donkey and a colt. <clears throat> this is to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So I love this. They, they go to him and they go to the guy and they're like, all right, we need your donkey. It's almost like when, when uh, you know, when you, get, when you get married and you have like your, your bridesmaids, they can just, they can ask for whatever they want of anything, because they just go up to someone and be like, oh, it's for the bride. It's for the bride. Like, don't worry about it. That's what this reminds me of. But no, this is something planned by Jesus. So first off, we're going to be talking about the donkey. 
So the people watching really would have understood the, the symbolism here and the significance of the donkey. We see the donkey as kind of a ridiculous animal. Anyone who wants to be taken seriously would have ridden like a more prestigious animal, right? Like that's what goes on in my mind. But they would have seen it differently. If a king were to ride a, a donkey into a village, it would have signified that he was arriving in peace. He would have been arriving humble, but no less, uh, with no less dignity. If a king were to arrive in, in conflict or war, then he would ride something such as a horse. And there's a, there's a picture of this in Zechariah 9.9, talking about the humble king. The king is spoken as humble, riding a donkey. So first off, this donkey, it's his, it's his declaration of himself as king. And the people responded to him. They, responded to him. They, they received him as king. They spread out their cloaks in front of him as a red carpet of sorts. And this wasn't just like their spare cloaks. It wasn't like they went home and grabbed, you know, their closet full of cloaks and laid them out. Look, most of these people only had their one cloak, and they took it off, and they put it down in front of him. So this is the same thing that Jews had done when Jehu was declared king in 2 Kings 9.13. And then, on, furthermore, some of them laid out palm branches the, the same culturally that they would have done for a war hero, someone coming back in victory, like a, a conqueror. Palm branches were a sign of triumph. They were a sign of, of victory and even peace. And uh, so lastly, or, yeah, lastly, the, the donkey served as a sacrificial symbol. So Mark's gospel in Mark 11, 11 2, gives us more information about this donkey that it had never been ridden before, making it suitable for sacred purposes. So like we see in, in Numbers 19.2 or Deuteronomy 21.3, it talks about uh, animals that have not been laden with a, a yoke or burden. So all these, all these, uh, these little things point to the sacredness of, of Jesus' act and his coming act. It likely also served as a symbol of the upcoming sacrifice that Jesus was going to make on the cross. So we have the donkey, but then there's also a significant to this, this cult that there, that's there too. Jesus is riding this cult possibly as a, as a symbol, most likely as a symbol of the new covenant. So we have the old donkey and the young one, and there's the old, old uh, covenant and the bringing in of the new covenant. And Jesus could not have chosen a more dramatic moment. And the people, they responded with plea, with a, a praise and plea. They responded by saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means literally save now. And it, it, it's possible that this phrase would have lost some meaning back in their time, kind of like for us. Like we sing Hosanna, we don't necessarily mean those literal, literal words save now, but it is a song and a, and a cry of praise. And so, so they're shouting this to their, their Lord and Savior as a, a cry for deliverance. And uh, we take this all, we don't take it just as coincidence, but as deliberate planning on Jesus' part. It was his method of awakening his people, his method of getting their attention, finally declaring who he was as Lord. And at Passover, nevertheless, People paying attention 
could not have missed it. When he came in, verse 10 says that the whole city stirred and they asked, who is this? It's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, they said. At the mention of his name and place, no one would have, no one would have uh, mistaken who Jesus was. By saying this, it would have immediately piqued their interest. And it said that a, a bunch of people followed along in his caravan, and surely people who didn't form up with that caravan probably assumed he was going to the temple and probably cut him off there at the temple. So stepping back from this symbolism, we see Jesus more or less in this, this literal setting, and uh, his, the eyes were already on him wherever he went. And now he's heading to the biggest Jewish city in one of the, the biggest uh, Jewish festivals. And so the pressure was just on him. So let's look at Jesus. First off, he came in courage and determination. He knew this city would end up hostile toward him. He knew that his time has, had come. And really, his whole ministry, like anytime he had gone anywhere, anytime there was any kind of enthusiasm around him, it didn't really end up that great for Jesus, specifically with the religious leaders. He knew that what he was declaring was going to make some people mad. He knew that uh, they were going to want him to denounce himself as God. They were going to want him to denounce himself as king. Then he came to declare. He was declaring himself as Messiah, as king, God's anointed one. He came declaring himself as the true cleanser of the temple. Some had called him a prophet, but he wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he was much, much more than that. And then he came in peace. He came humbly, riding a donkey. He came not to destroy everything politically, but he came to love and restore with an invitation to everyone. And surely, the, the religious leaders, hearing of all of this, they would not have been pleased. We're going to continue, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city to Bethany and lodged there. So, as if the eyes weren't already on Jesus and the religious leaders hadn't hated him enough, Jesus really just pushes the envelope even further. He goes out into the temple precincts. So, the, 
the, uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish temple, when they say temple precincts here, the Jewish temple is, is very divided up. So first, on the outer layer, the, the temple, there was the, the court of the Gentiles, into which anyone might come, and beyond which it was death for any Gentile to penetrate. Then there came the court of women, entered by the beautiful gate of the temple into which any Israelite might come. And then there was the court of the Israelites, entered by the gate called Nicanor's Gate, a great gate of Corinthian bronze, and needed 20 men to open and shut it. It was in this court that the people assembled for their temple services. And then lastly, there came the court of the priests, into which only the priests might enter, and in it stood the, the burnt offering, the incense, lampstand, showbread, and a bronze bowl. And, this, and in this, in the back of this, stood the, the naos itself, with the holy of holies. So Jesus enters a temple precinct. So when we say temple precincts, it means the like, outermost area. This is like the area everyone could have entered. It was always busy here, but just keep in mind how many people were already in the city and the reason that they were there. Everyone, whether they believed or not, everyone was going to be coming to this area at one point or another. It was always busy here, but it had to have been packed, wall-to-wall people. And so in this outer court, there were two types of trading happening here. So first, Jews had to pay a temple tax if they were going to, to worship there. And so they had to pay the temple tax of half a shekel. And so this tax was going to be paid around Passover time. And uh, prior to, to the, this whole Passover week, uh, they could have paid outside of the temple, and there would have been booths set up around town and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it was as it drew closer, there would be a date where all of those booths would just be in the temple itself only. That's the only place you could, you could trade. And so there was still a, a lot of, a very large majority of Jews who would have only paid for it here in the, the outer courts. And then only certain money would be accepted and inferior metal or coins or coins that had been, you know, shaved off or anything like that, uh, those wouldn't be accepted. So if someone were to bring in coins, especially foreign currency, and they wanted to uh, pay the temple tax, they had to trade that money for money that was acceptable. And so you think, okay, well, all this seems pretty normal. And... Uh, the, the problem was that these traders, they would charge a large commission for uh, trading back and forth, and then if there was change on top of that, like you, you paid them, you know, a $100 bill, and, you know, you had 50 bucks in change back or whatever, like you would get charged a commission on whatever change they gave back to you as well. And so all this, like, it just would have been difficult for the working man really, to, to pay his half shekel and then pay the commissions on top of that. And so the money, it, it wouldn't just go into the trader's pocket, but it would go into the community and public infrastructure and temple treasury, like all good things. There wasn't necessarily fraud and abuse here, built, like built into the system, but it certainly would have opened itself up to exploitation, especially when there's just large crowds everywhere. There's so much demand, like 
you're a trader and you have a line of 50 people behind your booth and you're like, well, you know, demand's high, so I'm, we're going to take a little extra off the top or whatever. Certainly there was plenty of room for exploitation. And uh, where, so there's that temple tax and, and then there's another place where uh, trading was happening and here uh, people could be exploited even more. And that was with the selling of animals. So here's a, here's a for instance. A, a woman gives birth to a child, and to cleanse herself, she has to come and offer a dove. So she would come out, and she would buy those doves, possibly outside the temple. There were other traders around where she could bought the bought those doves, but those doves are supposed to be without blemish. And so they'd have to be inspected by an official of the temple. So you can see where that could go. So who's to, of course, stop the temple official from rejecting any bird that came from outside and uh, only allow the birds that were purchased inside the temple? So some of those could be up to 15 times the price. And so these people would get directed to these price-gouging vendors, and uh, the stalls they were directed to were called, gets even better, called the bazaars of Annas. So that's the property of the high priest. So, yeah, that doesn't sound great. So in business, they call this the agency problem. That's where one party is expected to act on behalf of the other party, but there's a conflict of interest there and very little structure to check on those conflicts of interest. So defrauding the people, it was generally pretty easy, and it was obviously going on here to some extent. And uh, all this abuse must have crept in somewhere. But I think it's, it's also important to note that not every trader was dishonest, not every trader was taking advantage of people and abusing people, but uh, obviously it, it was going on. And you might think, oh, well, you know, like a lot of those are tourists, like we feel less sympathetic for just tourists who are getting ripped off. But there were legitimate worshipers also coming in and... Uh, getting taken advantage of as well. So Jesus gets probably the most angry we've ever seen him in the Bible. Jesus hated to see people exploited at all, and let alone in the name of religion. So the, the depiction of this in, in John 2, I, I love, and this may or may not have been the exact same instance, could have been at an earlier time, but it jo- so shows Jesus making a whip and, like, every time I picture this, I picture that. Like, Jesus just, like, like, cracking the whip. That's where that came from. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. But he called it a, a den of thieves, which, which borrows a term from Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7:11, where he reprimands the Israelites for their fake religion. And it was making it impossible for ordinary people to worship in the house of God. Isaiah 56, 7 says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for all, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. For all people. The purpose of this was that anyone could come. Although it would have been a a touristy place, there certainly were people that came there to worship. 
And those who came to worship were turned away by the very same people that were, were charged there, who were purposed there to facilitate that worship. So this leads me to the thought of, for me personally, like I don't ever want to be the reason that someone doesn't believe in God. I don't ever want to be the reason that someone is turned away from God. So don't be the one that invites hypocrisy, greed, or dissent, arguments, bitterness into the church. And then we, we look back at, at verse 13, and, and Jesus here, he's not just mad at the merchants. They were the ones making money, but he was also mad at the priests. Because the, the priests, they've invited this all in. The priests allowed this all to happen. Maybe it, it, it was a slippery slope. Maybe it came out of a good heart. Maybe some of them, uh, even some of them didn't want the merchants there at all. Maybe... It had gotten out of hand. Regardless, Jesus was holding them accountable. Maybe it was, it was an innocent thing. It was a good idea on the priest's part, and it just got out of hand. We're going to allow the, you know, it's like we're going to allow the merchants here. They're going to do business. They're going to help serve people. It's going to make everything easier for the people coming in here. We can let all these, these people know that come in, you're buying it, like, oh, these vendors over here, like, those people are believers, like, you know, help out your fellow believers and all that, and maybe it came out of a good heart. But then it went full-on corrupt. They see, it all seemed like a good idea, and it quickly came out of hand. And I, I think there's times in our lives where we allow sin to make a similar foothold. It starts with maybe even something innocent. Then we, it, we let it get out of control, and it, it spirals completely out of control, and, and uh, it reaches a point where we're in need of, of some kind of intervention, or else it's going to lead us to disaster. And we might think, oh, well, I, I, you know, I didn't mean for it to go this far. I didn't mean for this to happen. It just kind of did. And in this story, it seems like the priest's greed grew. And it went from, maybe this will serve our people, maybe we can, we can help people to, we can make a lot of money here. This Passover week could pay for our whole year. And it's going to good things, right? Like, well, it's not, it's not bad, because it's going to the temple, like, it's going to, you know, we got a couple holes in the wall that we need to fill in. And like, this is just, this is going to make God's house just really, really perfect. We can get new, you know, new clothes and all that kind of stuff. So, no big deal. This passage, it, it stares straight in the face of the prosperity gospel. God's not concerned first and foremost with your riches. In fact, he states all the time that the love of all this stuff could get in your way. So this passage, it ends with Jesus healing the blind and the lame in the temple court. So there are still crowds here. Jesus didn't drive everyone out, I guess. And uh, there must have been still a considerable amount of chaos there. And uh, some of this, by, 
by nature would have been just the sheer size of the crowd. Maybe some of it was caused by just Jesus' presence. Uh, but Jesus, he continues to teach in the temple. We gather in Mark 11 that Jesus would come and do this daily. But whether all this happened in the same day or, or not, we don't know. But he's healing people. People are coming to him and he's healing them. So first, Jesus drove out the impurity in the temple and then he's going on to cleanse and, and heal the, the penitent, those in, with humble hearts. So all this is happening, and then children, they start shouting. They start, start shouting and praising Jesus, and then it says, and they were indignant, meaning the, the leaders in the temple. They were mad. It's not... Just like pretty much any other time, I feel like Jesus is in the temple. So, and this is not any normal day in the temple. This is, you know, the week of Pentecost. And uh, normally, this whole kind of outburst from the children probably wouldn't have been tolerated, probably would have been shut down pretty quickly. But uh, they were mad. Not Maybe not just because they were praising Jesus, but because they were causing disruptions, because they were children shouting in the temple courts, and they were just adding to the chaos. But surely, most of it probably had to do with Jesus. But uh, we look at earlier in Luke 19 that the uh, adult disciples were doing a similar thing, and the, the leaders also got mad at them, and they were silenced, it says. So something happened here where the children were allowed to do this. So either Jesus scolded the leaders for trying to silence the children, or more likely it was just complete chaos in the temple courts because it's just wall-to-wall -wall people. You can't control wall-to-wall -wall people. I have a hard time controlling a couple rows of people. <laughs> talking about junior high in case you didn't catch that. but So Something here is, is clear to me is that something we already know, adults have all sorts of inhibitions and, and other interests and filters, while children do not. They, children, we know, the children just call it as they see it. They don't have any filter. Just the other day, I was in the grocery store with Dean, my son, and... Uh, he was in the shopping cart, and I was pushing him around, and I had to stop him from yelling at people, telling him to get out of our way. <laughs> he just calls it like he sees it. We're in the store, and he's going, get out, move, move. And I was like, Dean, you can't tell people to move. Move, please. I'm like, no. <laughs> Don't talk to them. Just say hi. So children, they may not know everything, they may not grasp the truth of everything, but they do know how to be honest. They do know how to call it like they see it. And they didn't see Jesus as a, as a weirdo. They didn't see Jesus as a scary man with a whip. No, they, they praised him as Messiah. And they clearly saw his goodness. And so they're, they're shouting out, Hosanna, they're singing his praise as Lord and King. So ending all this off, 
Look at how then should we live? First off, rely on God as peace bringer and king over your life. Second, examine our hearts for sin that has taken a hold of us. And lastly, do not be the reason people turn away from God. Would you guys pray with me, please? God, I thank you for uh, this example of of Jesus in Matthew. God, I pray that we would have the same conviction as Jesus, that we would have the the same uh, desire of Jesus to to see you glorified. And, And no matter what our opposition, no matter what our obstacles that we would push through, God, I pray that we would uh, exalt you as king in our life, over all our life. I, I pray that uh, that would happen as it needs to happen, maybe even on a daily basis, hourly basis, and that you would uh, continue to show us where, uh, where you've seen sin take a, take a hold of our lives. God, I, I pray that you will... Uh, Use us for the furtherance of your kingdom. For those of us who believe in you, those of us who've declared you as as Lord and King and Savior, that you would use us to minister your gospel to other people and that we would not be the reason anyone turns away from you, but that we would be the reason that, that people come towards you. Use us. Speak through us change our hearts. I pray this all in your name and your power. Amen.